This morning, we start a new series based on the prophecy we find in Isaiah 61. This is a prophecy that describes the kingdom of God. The Messiah calls his people to equally build and embody and to wait for. In Luke 4, Jesus reads this passage, this particular passage, in the local synagogue and declares that it has been fulfilled in him using it both to begin his ministry, but also publicly express what he's actually going to be doing uh, for God's people, how he's going to bind up the hearts of the brokenhearted, how he's going to be declaring good news. Jesus brings the kingdom of God, a new way of being, a new way of interacting, a new way of understanding ourselves our place in this world and in God's plan, uh, Jesus brings that kingdom into our world and installs it. He puts it in the hearts of his children. For the next month or so, we'll be looking at what that means for us today. We're going to be pairing uh, several verses from Isaiah 61 with different uh, stories uh, throughout Scripture, really throughout the entire Bible, both the Old and New Testament. But this morning, we are looking at how the kingdom of God And Jesus, in particular, offers salvation, how deeply he is committed to our salvation. And we begin uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. And we read this. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Toddlers, unlike most mature adults, tend to cause a scene. For example, I know one sweet, loving, and generally happy little boy who slips into short bouts of insanity at the drop of a hat. Sometimes he loses control because he literally dropped his hat. That is the reason for his tantrum. But it can be anything. The Cheerios aren't new. There are tears of deep sorrow. His sister touched his leg or maybe even thought that he touched his leg. Screams of injustice. How dare she? We insist that he wear clothes and not run around in a diaper because he tends to take the diaper off. (laughs) More tears because he can't live his dreams. A dog walks by, offending his hidden royal sensibilities. Uh, Screams and tears combined, he gets upset. Growing into his own opinions and ideas, 
Uh, he, like most toddlers, lacked the skills to actually verbalize what they're feeling uh, or share what they want or need. And so they have a tendency to just act up. When it's happening and when you're in the season, you think this will never end, that perhaps we're raising some wild child. But it does end eventually. In this light, their trademark tempers, their, you know, their uh, tendency to just get upset makes sense. It isn't out of character for toddlers to melt down, to get angry, especially if they are tired or they're hungry. We expect them to behave in a certain way. But if that toddler does something out of character, like, for example, never crying on a five-hour trip to the beach, we take notice. We go, why is this, why now? Why is this the moment that he is calm? When someone, however, defies our expectations, our typical reaction is often surprise, maybe curiosity. Why did they do that when they usually do this? Is something wrong? Is something, uh, are we missing something? Or is there something deeper happening uh, beneath the surface? In our scripture today, when Jesus seemingly lays aside the mantle of Prince of Peace and causes a scene that brings the temple celebrations of Passover to a halt, we tend to pay attention because it's out of character for Jesus. We expect our Savior to be calm and cool and collected as he goes about his ministry, a non-anxious presence that diffuses tense situations. Yes, he is, of course, critical of the Pharisees. He can be hard on his disciples. He's frustrated at the brokenness that he sees in the world and his people. But anger is not a common emotion we see in the Gospels. Jesus is rarely angry. So when he crafts a whip to use against the money changers and merchants doing business in the temple courtyard, when he overturns their tables, when he drives animals that were for sale through the gate and defends his father's house, we can't help but notice this is an unusual situation for Jesus. In fact, because it's so unusual, unusual, we should probably even pay closer attention than normal. Because his anger here actually provides a glimpse into the very heart of God himself. Now, it's important here to understand the original purpose and meaning of the temple in Jerusalem. A holy place designed to reduce the separation sin had caused between the Lord and his people. After God delivered the Israelites from slavery in Exodus, he realized that without guidance, the people's sin would eventually lead them away from his safekeeping, back into danger and inevitable destruction. To help them maintain their relationship with him, the Lord provided the law, which showed them how they they should act and live as God's chosen people. In addition, the law provided a central, uh, tangible location where God's Spirit could reliably be found and approached in worship. The temple represented God's promise to remain active in the world. It was the home address of the Jewish people's God and King. It was that. That was what it was originally designed to be. Specifically, the presence of God rested in the center of the temple, in the Holy of Holies, 
a room so sacred only one priest was able to enter, and then, only then, after years of preparation. For a people incapable of maintaining a relationship with their God, the, pe- the temple allowed the people to come close to the God who loved them. Throughout their history, Jewish families flocked to Jerusalem during holy weeks like Passover to worship the Lord and draw closer to the one who gave them life and purpose. It was the central part of their calendar. It was what they did to be reminded of how God saved them in the past and how he was active with them in their ups and downs of their life. At its best, the temple helped people remember how their God had been faithful and lifted up his love and mercy and grace. It was a concrete embassy of eternity in their own neighborhood. It could even, through burnt offerings and sacrifices, cleanse the sins of the people and restore their relationship with God. Unfortunately, the temple rarely operated at its best. More often, the temple revealed itself to be a fairly human institution run by people who cared little, if at all, about the people's connection with their God. When Jesus and his disciples arrived, the temple was less a place of worship, although that still happened, and kind of resembled a bit of a tourist trap. In order to boost revenue, the chief priests allowed merchants and money changers to set up shop inside the temple walls. Now, from the outside, this actually makes a little bit of sense. The merchants only were allowed to sell animals needed for sacrifices, which the people needed for worship. For many, uh, you know, hauling a whole bunch of animals uh, from their homes across the Roman Empire all the way to Jerusalem was a burden. It was sometimes impossible. So buying the animals that you needed at the temple kind of simplified life. Families were also required to pay a tax to worship using a particular Jewish currency, which wasn't really used outside of Jerusalem, which was why the money changers were there. They were, uh, they were exchanging uh, their money for this particular kind of money. Now, on the surface, these seem more like services of convenience than blasphemy. But they didn't really work in the right way. Both of these practices were considered blatantly corrupt, even to outsiders. The animals sold in the temple were overpriced, first off, and they were not in the best condition, which is actually what the law explicitly required. People were supposed to bring the best that they had to the Lord, and that was not what was happening with, the, uh, with the, uh, uh, these people in the temple. The money changers demanded large fees, as much as 15% for every exchange, and the priests required a cut of that transaction, which raised prices as well. It wasn't actually designed for the people coming in. Uh, it, It was designed to hurt them. It was designed to take advantage of their need. Entering this environment, Jesus was overcome with emotion driving out everyone and everything that turned his father's house into a place of business instead of worship. The anger that Jesus shows here flowed not just from some momentary frustration. He didn't really lose his temper, but because 
the people had turned the temple into the opposite of its original intent. Rather than being drawn closer to God, the people found the door harder to open. For Jesus, this was like discovering a well designed to provide fresh, clear water had been pumping poison into people's homes. The temple should have been a beacon of hope, pointing to the love of God, but it was actually doing the opposite, withholding the promises of God behind a wall of false requirements, and Jesus could not allow it to continue. The disciples who were watching Jesus remembered Psalm 69, which said that the zeal of the Messiah would consume him. And the Greek zeal conveys a burning emotion so fervent, so red hot, that it inevitably boils over into action. Uh, Imagine a kettle over an open flame. That is how Jesus felt on the inside in this moment. He was so disturbed and frustrated at what the temple had become. It poured out in his actions. When confronted with such deliberate indifference to the plight of those who lived apart from God, desperate to catch words of assurance or a moment of communion with the Lord, His emotions could not be contained. Anything, anything that blocks the people from approaching their Lord could and would not be tolerated. And so as Jesus was without sin, he was justified when he raged at the brokenness of the temple, the indifference of the priests and the corruption of the merchants and the money changers and judgment Jesus physically removed everything that prevented the people from coming to the Lord. Now, this isn't his typical approach, but the Lord sometimes knows that sometimes we must be shocked or surprised before our hearts turn to him. Throughout Scripture, the Lord often uses pain or discomfort to get his people's attention. The Lord injured the hip of Jacob so he would remember he was now a new creation. Moses led the Israelites to the wilderness for decades so they might learn to depend solely on God so that their faith might actually be strong. The prophets embarrassed the kings of Israel so they would repent. And when they didn't, he sent his children into exile so they might remember their God both reigns and had long-term plans For their restoration. Pain and shock are never far from the Lord who describes himself as both a lamb but also a lion. C.S. Lewis writes that pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us on our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is, it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. To our great surprise, what we find in this story of Jesus getting angry is that Jesus approaches our hearts with the same zeal he shows in the temple. Our God desires to remove everything, everything that separates us from himself. 
distracts from his promises and leads us away from his life into death and destruction. Remember, the disciples quoted a passage from the Psalms. In the Hebrew, the Hebrew word used for zeal is translated most often as jealous. What this tells us is that our God is never passive when it comes to the pursuit of his children. His passion burns brightly for us. His passion, his love, burns brightly for you today. Our God's love burns for you. Like a lightning bolt in the dark of dark night, like a church bell ringing directly above us, God's love rages like a hurricane, clearing everything, every sin, every idol, every thought that gets in the way of his plans for our salvation. On some level, on some level, knowing the depth of God's love probably makes us a little bit nervous. Jesus is bound by love to kill the sin in us, to break every chain that holds us down so he might unite his heart with ours forevermore. And sometimes, maybe all the time, that transformation can hurt. Changing from a rebellious sinner into a saint is sometimes a difficult process. Flannery O'Connor, who wrote short stories, um, this past century, wrote that God's grace burns. Letting go of things that bring darkness instead of light might leave us bruised or uncomfortable. Abandoning habits of self-destruction where comfort can be found in familiarity is not really easy. It's not fun. Reorganizing priorities can sometimes be painful as we cut away things We put ahead of God. The invitation to obey the commands of God, to step into a broken world that Jesus says might actually hate us, as we attempt to love as he loves, is not exactly appealing. But our reluctance is just a sign of something broken in us. The process to remove the sin which is burrowed deep into our hearts will never be easy. But George MacDonald, a storyteller from Scotland in the 1800s, writes this. He talks about God's jealous zeal for his children, the depth of his love, like this. Every tempest is but an assault in the siege of love. The terror of God is but the other side of his love. His anger is love on the outside which would be inside. His anger is love on the outside, which would be inside. If we are to grow into the people God wants us to be, sin must be extracted from the deepest part of our souls, pulled up by the root, no matter the damage. But here we must understand that the zeal of Jesus actually reveals something even more profound that points to something even deeper. The temple reminded people of God's law, but it could not write law on their hearts. It could not remove the sin that blocked their access to God, but Jesus does, which becomes clear when the crowds demand a sign. Instead of performing a miracle, Jesus references his death 
and resurrection. I will destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The zeal that inspired Jesus to fashion a whip out of bits of rope and to turn over tables is not just evidence of an emotion. It is a declaration of intent. Notice that this particular episode happens in the second chapter of John's gospel. Most historians, early church fathers especially, think that Jesus confronted the same people in the temple twice. Once early in his ministry, which John records here and then later, both times a blatant signal of what he's come to do and reflecting his identity as the Messiah and King. Jesus bringing order to the temple, the house of God, actually reflects the deeper mission to bring order to the hearts of his children. Early church father Origen says, Now Christ is especially jealous for the house of God in each of us, for he is the son of a jealous God. Church, Jesus desires not only to capture but live in our hearts. And absolutely nothing, even sin and death, can stop him. In our modern language, we tend to think of zeal, of anger, as an intense emotion. But the original Hebrew means to devour, to be eaten up. The zeal that Jesus experiences, the deep love he has for each of us, doesn't just boil over, but leads him to the cross. Leads him to be Consumed, so he can eliminate everything that separates his children from himself. Jesus is eaten up. He is taken apart and destroyed on our behalf. But what consumes him? The last part of the, of the psalm gives us a clue. The reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The very same Things that kept us apart from God, that ruined our relationship with the Lord long ago and still prevents us from walking with him now. Jesus takes every bit of it onto himself. Jesus being consumed by righteous anger, motivated by divine love in the temple, points directly how he will take our place before a righteous God and be consumed by the wrath we deserve. The early church father, John Christensen, writes, this was not, in other words, the action of a pretender, but of one who has chosen to suffer everything for the order of his house. The zeal our Lord feels for us leads him to the cross so the doors of heaven might be flung wide for all who call on his name in faith. The depth of God's zeal is so real, so deep, so committed, he let himself be destroyed so that we might be united to our God, the Father, forever. Christ was willing to be consumed so that God might make our hearts his home, that he might come to live in us forever. So today, may we be ready to welcome, welcome him as master of our hearts, today and always. Hallelujah.
Amen.